and welcome to another episode of Cybernia, a podcast exploring science in Ireland and beyond. I'm Sylvia Leatham and with me in studio today are show producer Gavin Byrne and science blogger Maria Daly. You can find us on the web at cybernia.ie or on facebook.com forward slash cybernia and on Twitter under at cybernia or you can email us at podcast at cybernia.ie. On the show today we have something of a solar theme. We'll be talking about how the sun might influence winters in Ireland for decades to come. And we have an interview with a physicist who tells us all about so-called space weather. We'll also be chatting about some sciencey things you can do on a holiday if you're traveling abroad this summer. We're halfway through the year already, and while summertime is yet to really kick in, we've actually been looking ahead to wintertime. Last week, I met up with solar physicist Ian Elliott, and I'm afraid he had some rather grim predictions to make about the coming Irish winters. Elliott has worked as a solar physicist for more than 50 years and was formerly assistant professor of the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies at Dunsink Observatory. So, Ian Elliott, uh, so far our summer has not been very impressive, uh, but I'm afraid you have some more depressing news because you're here to talk about the possibility of cold winters for Ireland. Well, as everyone knows, we've just had two very severe winters. And the question is, are we going to have more? And to answer this question, we have to think about the sun and its activity uh, that that's evidenced in the sunspots. And we have to look at the historical record. If we go back 300 or 400 years, we find that Europe was in the grips of the Little Ice Age. Mm -hmm. And around the beginning of the 18th century, in fact, the conditions were so bad that the Thames froze over to a depth of a foot. And they had frost fairs on, on the Thames. Uh, they even took an elephant <laughs> across the ice. Wow. So th those were very severe conditions. Okay. And if we, we've been observing sunspots for 400 years, so we know what the sun was doing in those years. And it's, it, it, the record shows that there were actually no sunspots on the surface of the sun between 1645 and 1715. That there was a, a period of 70 years where if someone saw a sunspot, they, they wrote a paper about it and sent it to the Royal Society. Okay, uh, so we should probably explain now what sunspots are before we go any further. Okay, a sunspot is a dark marking on the surface of the sun. And as the sun rotates, so that sunspot rotates with the sun. The sun rotates about once every month. Mm -hmm. And these dark markings are actually very strong magnetic fields and with uh, field strengths about two and a half to three and a half thousand times the Earth's magnetic field. So um, we're really talking about the magnetic activity of, of the sun. Okay, um, so you then are saying there is a correspondence between observing these sunspots and the climate. Exactly. There's a very strong correlation between low sunspot activity and cold winters in Europe. Now, this isn't a global phenomenon. This, okay. is, this is a regional phenomenon that, that's restricted to Europe and maybe Eastern Asia. Um, th th that's our understanding at the moment. So, 
Um, now, the present situation is that the sunspot number has taken a dive. Right. Since, um, since when? Uh, since, well, we've just come out of what's known as cycle 23, the numbering of the solar cycles. So the, the, the activity of the sun uh, varies in an 11-year cycle, as you probably know. This is like the... I didn't the, know that. <laughs> the, well, this is the sort of pulse of the, of the sun. Okay. Uh, and the, the height of the pulse, so to speak, varies from cycle to cycle. So it would go through a period of maybe less activity and then gradually more? Or? Yes. Well, we've just actually come out of a period of high activity in the 20th century. That is from 1920 to 2010. Okay. And the last cycle was cycle number 23 and it ended and the sun sort of went very, very quiet and we didn't know what cycle 24 was going to do. So we're now in cycle 24, and it looks as if the sunspot maximum in two years' time will reach only about 55. This is the, and, the sunspot number. And is that low? What's the normal Well, if, if you go back in time, the last time it was that low was about the 1800s in a period that was called the Dalton Minimum because of the low temperatures. It w um, previous to, to that, around the early 1700s, uh, there was the Maunder Minimum when uh, the conditions were even colder and there were no sunspots on, on the sun for many years. So in my opinion, we're already in a Dalton-type minimum and this may continue for decades that's what I was. My next question was: How long is this going to last? Well, it's very difficult to say, because these grand minima usually occur in clusters, and they can have durations from thirty years to one hundred and fifty years. So you're talking about this is the low uh, level of, of sunspot activity is the grand minima is that what you mean by that yes indeed uh, we're certainly not going to have a repetition of the grand maxima of, of, of the grand maximum of the 20th century uh, we can forget about that because the sun only stays in its maximum phase for about 10 percent of the time it stays in its minimum phase for about 17% of its time. And if we can look back actually over thousands of years by looking okay. at the sunspot record in the carbon-14 data recorded or, uh, in, in tree rings. So tell me more about how that works. So, so obviously we've only been able to look at the sun for the last, I think, 400 years yes. since we've had telescopes, yeah. but we yes. can actually get data going back further than that. Well, that's right. Uh, the, uh, living plants, uh, in particular trees, absorb carbon dioxide and some of this carbon dioxide is radioactive because it contains carbon atoms that were at the top of the atmosphere actually there were nitrogen atoms and they were hit by cosmic rays and they become radioactive carbon 14 that's absorbed by the trees and it's actually a record of the solar activity over the years the, the what happens is those cosmic rays are modulated by the Earth's, uh, by the Sun's magnetic field, uh, and there's uh, inverse correlation between this uh, sunspot number 
and the uh, carbon-14 data. Anyway, this gives us, gives us a record of past solar activity, mm -hmm. and we have a record now for 11,000 years. So we can say statistically what's, what may happen. Right, 11,000 years is a lot of data. And that, does it perfectly correspond with uh, showing number of what type of solar activity and do we know like what the weather or climate was like around the times? Um, well, yes, indeed, we can uh, correlate this solar activity in, in the carbon-14 uh, record with uh, records of, say, the temperature of the Earth that comes from the ratio of oxygen isotopes that are found in ice cores taken in Antarctica. So they, one can build up a whole picture of the relation between the solar activity and the, the climate. I, I prefer not to use the word weather. Weather okay. is, is the day-to-day -day, uh, changes that we occur. Climate is really what happens on decades, a, a decadal timescale. And that's really what we're talking about. Okay. So uh, I presume there is nothing we can actually do to prevent this from happening, but um, maybe there are things we should be doing to prepare? Well, exactly. We can't do anything about it. It's going to happen one way or the other, but we should make pre preparations. Uh, it's obvious that transport firms need to be prepared to have snow plows and have uh, stores of grit to treat the, the roads and so on. Uh, but I think it's the farmers that will suffer most. I know that last year uh, some farmers grew varieties of oats that were, were just killed by the frost. So th th there's a whole range of uh, measures that need to be taken. And even the householders, you have to improve your ins insulation, you have to make sure you've got enough fuel in. And, and oh, well, uh, I was thinking of getting my windows double glazed, so I think I might have to do that now. I think it would pay off, yes. I'm certainly going to buy some snow tires for my car. I see. Ian Elliott, thank you very much. Thank you. And did Ian Elliott tell you anything about what our summers are going to be like over the coming years? Well, I asked him this question because it was playing on my mind because it, it seemed like we we're going to be in for some very uh, severe winters, according to his predictions. But uh, he wouldn't really... Well, I mean, he... he he really pointed me in an, in another direction. He couldn't really answer the question because it's not his area of expertise, but uh, he did give me some leads as to where to go to investigate it. It's, it's actually an entirely different question in a different area. So uh, it's something that we'll have to investigate for sure. Now, we're actually going to continue talking about the sun for a while because fellow cybernaut Jared Cunningham has also been talking to a solar physicist about, quote, space weather. I'll leave it to Jared to introduce this interview with Lindsay Fletcher of the University of Glasgow, but note that she also talks about the correlation between cold winters and low sunspot activity, as did our previous guest. But she puts this in a wider context of a discussion about climate change. Dr Lindsay Fletcher is a reader in solar physics. She works at the University of Glasgow and she is the Royal Astronomical Society's 2011 Harold Jeffries Lecturer. She has also appeared on the BBC Sky at Night programme and in mid-June of this year she gave a presentation on the weather in outer space in Trinity College, organised by Astronomy Ireland. Matter exists in four states, Dr Fletcher explained. The three we experience every day, 
solid, liquid and gas, and a fourth superheated state, plasma. The sun is composed of superheated molecules, so hot that electrons and neutrons are separated. In this plasma state, it's effectively a giant electromagnet. And every now and then, as the storms boil on the sun's surface, a lightning crack appears for a second and can be photographed. And that lightning crack sends hundreds of thousands of particles into space, streaming out into the solar system. I'm here with Dr. Lindsay Fletcher from the University of Glasgow, who this evening gave a lecture to Astronomy Ireland in Trinity College. Dr. Fletcher, could you tell me a little about your work? Yes, certainly. Um, I work on the sun, that's what my lecture was about um, just then. And particularly I work on um, very energetic events on the sun known as solar flares. Um, and solar flares are quite dramatic. It sort of represents a, a violent release of energy which was previously stored in the atmosphere of the sun in a mysterious way. And um, what's important about solar flares for us is the effects that they have. A lot of energy is released and that doesn't happen without consequences for the sun and also as it turns out for us on Earth. Uh, you mentioned during the lecture that uh, we actually live within the atmosphere of the sun and we're subject to the, uh, the sun's weather. Could you tell me something about some of the effects that that can have here on Earth? Yes, certainly. Um, so you're quite right, we do live within the atmosphere of the star. Of course, it's a very um, extended atmosphere by the time it gets out here. But um, out here at Earth, 150 million kilometres, 93 million miles away. But um, basically what happens um, during a, a, a solar flare is there's a very intense burst of radiation from the sun and that certainly can reach us at Earth and it uh, can cause some disturbances in our um, upper atmosphere, a part of the upper atmosphere called the ionosphere. It can heat that part of the Earth's atmosphere. But even more dramatic than that is um, you get a kind of huge... Um, um, what's the word? Blob. Very technical word. Very... very uh, large blob of um, magnetised gas which is kind of spat out from the sun travelling at about a million miles an hour and with a, a total mass of about a billion tonnes billion tonnes travelling at a million miles an hour um, from the sun to the earth and when that blob arrives at the earth it kind of shakes the earth's magnetic field we've got a magnetic field surrounding us as most people know um, and when this blob of magnetised gas runs into the Earth's magnetic field, it kind of shakes and disturbs the magnetic field. And uh, one of the effects of that is um, the, the energisation of particles trapped in the Earth's magnetic field to make the northern lights that we see, the aurora borealis, but also uh, those same effects can disturb for example, satellites which are um, orbiting the Earth within the Earth's magnetic field. And it can also lead to large electrical currents which flow um, through well, through the oceans, through the land, and sometimes through um, power distribution lines, uh, that kind of gas pipelines, railway lines. It causes uh, enhanced corrosion and short circuits and that kind of thing. So this is what is known generically as space weather. And in about 1989, 1990, 
um, the world kind of woke up to space weather following a very large solar flare and since then we've kind of been on watch for space weather events because of the effect that they have on satellites and power distribution, that kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, speaking of weather, uh, one of the other things that came up in the uh, questions and answer session after your lecture this evening was uh, climate change. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk and you'd answered a question on whether space weather could be one of the things responsible for climate change. This is a, a, a very controversial area and I'm certainly not an expert in it. Um, this is the first thing I would like to say. Um, now, I know that the total amount of radiation from the sun does vary through time as the sun gets more sunspots and less sunspots, fewer sunspots, and you know, then sunspots are associated with flares and space weather and so on. But the actual amount of radiation energy produced by the sun <coughs> um, throughout this, this sort of cyclic variation um, varies only by less than 0.1%, and so it's very unlikely that the actual variation in the sun's total energy output has got um, very much of anything to do with uh, what's happening in our climate just now, which first of all doesn't show a sort of cyclic profile, and secondly has a strong um, sort of upwards trend, which is completely unlike what we're seeing on the sun in terms of its activity right now. Or over the last uh, the last few cycles. However, you know, if you look back historically, there are periods when the sun had very very low solar activity, almost no sunspots, um, which coincided with um, times of very severe winters, for example, in Northern Europe. And one famous example of this happened at the end of the 17th century. It's so-called Maunder Minimum and the Little Ice Age. And then another one a little bit uh, later on, I think it was called the Dalton Minimum in about 1830, something like that. And so there is some correlation between temperatures in the Northern Hemisphere and activity on the sun, or lack of activity, magnetic activity on the sun. But the other thing you have to realise here is both of these things happened before the Industrial Revolution, and even before, in the first case, before the Agricultural Revolution, so humans had not started to influence the atmosphere. There was no fossil fuel burning to speak of. The population was a lot lower. There wasn't even any uh, very effective agriculture at that time. And if you look onwards in time, I think it is, it's not out with the realms of possibility. As a scientist, you've always got to you know, keep and entertain all possibilities. It's certainly not out with the realms of possibility that activity on the sun has a signature in the Earth's temperature. However, the strong increase over the last 50 years is something that the experts all agree that is very hard to explain by anything that's going on in the sun. It's likely that you still see small um, effects due to what's happening on the sun, but the, the strong increase in the temperature is very unlikely to be caused by anything which is going on in the sun just now. So, um, of course, one always has to keep an open mind about these things, and one also has to understand that it's a very complicated field. Um, but you also have to be able to decouple your idea of weather and climate and what's happened what happened in you know in the modern minimum and what's happened maybe in the last two cold winters is northern hemisphere weather and that's not the same as the climate so we have to we have to really be careful i think to keep these two things separate in our head but it's it's a very interesting area um very interesting area just now i'm not sure i want to say very much more than that at the minute because I think you've said an awful lot and it's been very informative so thank you very much dr fletcher you're welcome
So we're going to continue our sun-related theme now because with us in studio is science blogger Maria Daly and she's been looking at fun, sciencey things to do while on holiday this summer. Maria, you've picked out a few highlights of places around Europe that could be fun to visit. Uh, can you talk us through some of those? Yeah, so I'm just going to start in Barcelona with the Cosmo Keita. Okay, what's that? So it's um, it's an amazing science museum which opened in 2005 and I actually visited it in 2006. I didn't oh. realise it was only a year old, but um, a really, really impressive museum and it's it's um, mainly there for interactive exhibit- exhibitions. Okay, exhibits. yeah. What kind of stuff have they got in there? Um, so one of the highlights for me was the Amazon rainforest. So it's a yeah. huge area where they have all the trees and different animals and they have a whole wall of... Did they have the actual trees and animals or is it some kind of simulated thing? Well, no, they actually do have some actual trees and some actual animals but and oh. they have all the like the atmosphere so it's really moist. There's, there's like loads of moisture in the air okay. and it feels like it's raining kind of. So are you walking through this kind of forest? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, it's very, it's uh, really well done. And at one one part of it, um, there's a whole wall of um, ants where they have um, just them going through the soil and bringing leaves down into their nests. And like, it's just, I've never seen something as big in that with ants. So that was very interesting as well. Oh yeah, I love ants actually. Just observing (laughs) them, they're they're very interesting to watch. Yeah, their behavior is amazing. Just, Mm. and there's so many of them as well. You can see the patterns of, uh, walking up and down, so it's really, really interesting. Oh, great. I believe they also have uh, a, a giant uh, pendulum there in the museum. Can you tell yeah. us a bit about that? Yeah, it's the Foucault pendulum, so um, it's more than 40 metres long on a um, tread and it has a heavy iron ball at the end. Okay. So basically it's um, so it's such a long tread that it, it demonstrates the Earth's rotation because it's constantly moving in an arc. So this is a a pendulum which swings back and forth in kind of self-perpetuating motion? Exactly, yeah. And um, so the Earth is moving beneath it and um, what they have done in the Science Museum is that they've put um, kind of like dominoes around in a circle and gradually over the 24 hours it knocks them all down. So it's uh, very interesting to observe. So you can kind of see time passing and see the Earth's uh, rotation. Yeah, it's the only example I've ever seen of the Earth actually rotating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, being actually able to observe it happening. Yeah, because wow. I suppose it's always happening beneath you, which is, you can never imagine it. it. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's great. Uh, we're going to move on to Brussels now, and I believe you're going to tell us about the Atomium. Yeah, so um, this was part of the World Fair in 1958. So the Expo 58 was a very famous World Fair. So it's kind of going into science history. So um, it's a massive um, 165 billion times iron crystal. So basically it's enlarged so much that it's 102 metres high. So it's a a huge demonstration of um, just atoms. So it's basically for the peaceful use of atomic energy. Okay, yeah, I've actually been to the Atomium uh, some years ago, so oh, wow. it's uh, it's kind of fun. It's it's like uh, these giant spheres that are connected to each other, and you can actually walk around it as if you're walking through a molecule or an atom. Yeah, well, you're probably uh, best recommending it then. <laughs> I have never been there. So. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it is actually. It's kind of fun. It's 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 a little bit kind of quirky, but but fun too. Yeah. 
So, um, yeah, no, like I definitely, when I saw that, I really wanted to go. So yeah, I might a take a trip to, to Brussels kids, soon. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so you're also going to tell us briefly about uh, CERN, which uh, I did not realize was open to the public. Maybe you can just tell us uh, what CERN is and where it is. Yes, yeah, so, um, CERN um, is on the Switzerland-French French border. So it's all, um, you've probably heard of the news in relation to physics and the um it's where the uh, large hadron collider is yeah, yeah yeah exactly so lots so of crazy experiments going on there so it's more about the future of science um coming from the the science history back in brussels so it's really if you um cutting edge stuff happening there so it's like a giant uh, particle physics lab and of course the probably the most famous person that that people would be familiar with uh when they think about CERN is uh, Professor Brian Cox he, he worked there for a while I believe yeah so um the great thing about CERN actually is that um it's open to the public which again I didn't realize until I started researching for this and the admission is free so you can visit the exhibit the experimental areas and other facilities and I haven't been there so I'm not sure how much you can actually see but uh, it might be worth a trip for anyone who's really interested in physics. Uh, we had a couple of uh, suggestions come in to us on Twitter as well during the week about uh, cool science places to visit while on holiday. Uh, one of them was uh, Darwin's house in London and the other one was the Science Museum in Valencia. So Maria, just briefly, you looked into those for us. Yeah, so um, Darwin's house in London is um, it's in Down Village, so just outside London. And um, it's actually where he wrote um, on the origin of species. And you can see the study where he actually wrote it in. So um, that might be some inspiration for some budding scientists or geneticists. Mm. And he actually lived there for 40 years until his death. So um, it's meant to be very nice gardens as well. So um, kind of a, a nice place to visit for probably anyone interested in genetics or science. Oh yeah, I'd, I'd love to see it. I'd love to see it myself. Actually, yeah, and it's kind of different because I suppose you would probably think of the science museum when you go to London, and you mightn't think of Darwin's house. So mm. it's a alternative science thing to do. Great. So um, yeah, so there's also um, the science museum of Valencia. So um, I checked out the current exhibits, and there's the legacy of science and the chromosome forest. So definitely a thing to check out if you're in Spain this summer. That's great. Maybe you could combine it with the uh, Cosmocasia in Barcelona. Yeah, and do a science tour. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Okay. Well, I was also in Spain recently in, in Mallorca and uh, a small town in the north of uh, the island called Sayer. And uh, they did have this, it's, it's a new museum that opened there. It used to be an old house, that's, but it's huge. And it's been converted into a museum of modernism. But yeah, wandering around, it's mostly art, uh, modern art, and then there's a huge amount of scary dolls, like really creepy dolls. <laughs> okay. And But then down in the basement, there was a, a large amount of brains and jars, which I thought was quite interesting. It was done up almost like, and it was all weird flashing green lights and everything. So Were they real brains? Very real brains. I don't know they were real human brains. They were kind of small. I'd imagine a human okay. brain probably should be a little bit bigger, so they were probably from some sort of animal. <laughs> and are but, you uh, sure this was part of the exhibition yeah, and you I, hadn't just wandered know. into I, someone's I did basement. try singing under the bamboo tree to them, but I didn't get any response. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But there is, actually in the same time, there is supposed to be a rather lovely um, botanical gardens and natural history museum as well, because there's a huge amount of natural history on the Balearic Islands, so I'm hopefully get back there this, later this year and we'll get to see those. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully you'll report back from there. 
Now we just have time for a quick look at science-related events happening around Ireland in the next few weeks. Maria, would you like to tell us what's coming up? Yeah, no problem. On Tuesday, July 5th, physicist Malcolm Longar of Cambridge University will give a talk on black holes, dark matter and dark energy at 6.30pm at UCD's Belfield campus. The talk will be illustrated with images from a wide range of Earth-based and space telescopes and there will be simulations and movies too. You can book online at ssmr.ucd.ie forward slash dark universe. The Science Gallery's 2011 summer show Elements opens on July 14th. The show is designed to ignite visitors' interest in chemistry and the physical sciences and will draw on Dimitri Mendeleev's ionic periodic table. It will feature work by artists and scientists, an in-situ lab and a series of workshops and demonstrations. See sciencegallery.com for more info. And finally, Heritage Week takes place this year from August 20th to the 28th and will feature dozens of events nationwide relating to Ireland's natural and built heritage. You can find out exactly what's going on in your area at heritageweek.ie. That's all the events for now, but if you have an event you'd like to submit, you can email us on podcast at cybernia.ie. Thanks to all our guests and listeners. Thanks to Near FM and our producer, Gavin Byrne. You can find us on the web at cybernia.ie or on facebook.com forward slash cybernia, on Twitter under at cybernia, or you can email us at podcast at cybernia.ie. But that's all we have time for this week. Thanks. (laughs) 